Welcome to our special Friday Dispatch podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts, and make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. We'll hear a little later from our sponsors, CarShield and the Bradley Foundation. We're joined today by our own Declan Garvey, staff writer at The Dispatch, to talk about his latest piece for the website on a little race down in Georgia that's causing some turbulence in the Republican Party. Let's dive in. Steve, we're doing kind of a special, special Friday dispatch today. (laughs) Um, Declan had this really interesting piece on the website that was pretty newsy about uh, Marjorie Greene and talking to uh, minority leader Kevin McCarthy's office. And we thought we'd actually dedicate this podcast to discussing the implications of that. Declan, do you want to just give us a rundown of your reporting? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. Good to be good to be back on the podcast. Um, so we've written about in the Morning Dispatch and and elsewhere on the site. Uh, Audrey Falberg had a a great piece on the uh, growing conspiracy fringe within within the Republican Party. Um, but Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia's 14th district uh, won her primary runoff on Tuesday against Dr. John Cowan. And given that this is a district that President Trump carried by about 50 points in 2016, it's pretty much assured that um, that Green will be uh, entering Congress come 2021. Uh, so in the lead up to this primary runoff, several uh, kind of offensive and and uh, dangerous remarks from from Green uh, came came to the fore. She's uh, it's called the 2018 midterm elections uh, a quote. Islamic invasion uh, due to several Islamic members of Congress being elected. Um, she's made comments about African Americans and unemployment, uh, and and perhaps most notably, she is uh, an adherent to the QAnon conspiracy theory that um, alleges a nefarious deep state that's working to take down uh, President Trump and his followers, and and uh, accuses several prominent Democratic elected officials and. Uh, other celebrities of being part of an underground child sex ring and uh, um, among other things. And so this was, this was all primary to the, to the uh, runoff in the days following the runoff, it came out new videos surfaced by media matters uh, found that in 2018, she expressed nine 11 truth, trutherism questioning whether an airplane ever actually uh, landed or hit the Pentagon on September 11th, 2001. And she also uh, alleged that the Obama administration used uh, MS-13 uh, gang members as, quote, henchmen to carry out their dirty work, including um, a the murder of a DNC staffer, Seth Rich, um, that has been so certainly Certainly on the fringes of the Overton window, let's say, uh, how... What did McCarthy say? How does this fit into the larger plan for the Republicans? Yeah. So when those when her original comments were first reported, I believe in Politico uh, in in early June, McCarthy uh, and through a spokesman condemned them. So did um, uh, Steve Scalise, the Republican whip, as did um, Liz Cheney, the the House conference chair. Um, But. Scalise was the only uh, one in House leadership to go a step further and and primary or er, and endorse uh, Cowan Green's opponent in in the race, and uh, and he did some fundraising for. I was able to uh, confirm that with uh, with Cowan's campaign uh, a staffer yesterday. But since Green won the won the runoff, uh, they've all. Uh, remain silent. And McCarthy actually told us in a statement yesterday that he uh, will welcome uh, Green to the to the uh, Republican conference and that he's uh, looking forward to her victory in November. And so that's been kind of a, a very stark uh, flip in, in just a couple days there. Steve? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the obvious question is why? Why would, why would any leader of any party 
welcomed somebody who is, shall we say, a little nutty. Um, you know, we, we we try to be civil here at the dispatch, but we've also made a, a promise to be blunt and call things as we see them. The stuff that she's advocating is crazy. It's not true. It's false. And it's it's not, it's the kooky fringe. So why would somebody like Kevin McCarthy, who has in the past, um, you know, it, it eliminated committee assignments for, for Steve King um, after some others uh, in his in the Republican conference had been publicly critical of King. Why would he flip this time? Yeah, the my reporting suggests that it has a lot to do with um, his fight to stay on as minority leader post uh, post November, I guess. Speaker of Republicans take back the House, but that seems increasingly unlikely. Um, so Green was endorsed by uh, several prominent members of, of the House Freedom Caucus, uh, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, Andy Biggs among them. Um, and they did not uh, retract those endorsements even after some of these uh, more controversial comments came to light. And so McCarthy uh, relies on the House Freedom Caucus's support to maintain his position in, in House leadership. Um, and it's pretty clear that he is uh, wary of alienating those uh, members if, if he's going to end up going into kind of a pretty tough leadership fight uh, after the November election. But it really is um, a, a pretty stark double standard. I know you mentioned Steve King. Um, he, after he made some comments about white supremacy uh, to the New York Times back in uh, early 2019, uh, Leader McCarthy Met, uh, met with King and the, the Republican steering committee voted unanimously to strip him of all his uh, committee assignments. And that ultimately uh, led him to be uh, primaried by Randy Feenstra in Iowa uh, after serving, you know, almost two decades in, in the House. Um, and so I, I uh, caught up with uh, Steve King yesterday, gave him a call uh, to see what he thought about. Um, Was he excited to hear from you? So I, I called him completely out of the blue, uh, and he sounded like he was out doing something. He called, uh, I called and he answered and said, you know, I can't really hear you. Can you text me? I'll call you back later. And that's happened to me several times where people just don't want to talk to me. That's a dodge. Um, so I texted him, not expecting to hear anything back. He called me back an hour later saying uh, something along the lines of, you've definitely piqued my interest with this topic. I, <laughs> this is bait. I can't refuse. Um, and, <laughs> and so he, he did call me back. We had a, a 10 or 15 minute conversation. Um, and you know, he, he still harbors a, a lot of resentment for, uh, Kevin McCarthy and, and kind of what, what he sees as a, a inauthentic, uh, way for, uh, McCarthy to maintain his hold on power. Um, he, you know, he, he brought up several times the McCarthy stripping him of his own committee assignments based on what he says are fraudulent claims by the New York Times. He says he was misquoted um, and that he doesn't actually uh, believe in white supremacism. Um, but we, but, should say, uh, we should point out as an aside for listeners, Steve King says this a lot. And yeah. he says this even in cases when he was accurately quoted. We had a, a, a little dust up with him in uh, 2016 at the Weekly Standard, where uh, one of our reporters, Adam Rubenstein, had gone to a Steve King event. K King was speaking to some voters and I think probably wasn't aware of the presence of a reporter in the room and seemed to compare immigrants to dirt. And uh, when we published the, the comments later, King accused us of making up the, the quotes. Uh, his, his chief of staff uh, accused us of doing that as campaign chairman did, and then King finally did, and, and did so repeatedly over the course of several days until we furnished the actual audio recording um, where he made exactly the comments that we had quoted him making. So this is not a new thing for, for Steve King. Out of curiosity, when you showed them the audio or uh, listened, let them listen to the audio, what was the reaction then? Silence. We heard nothing. They, it was in, I mean, this is a little bit of a digression, but, but, um, we, Adam had been taping, he'd taped everything, uh, during his trip to 
to Iowa and was doing a story on on Steve King and his race, which was expected to be a tight race. This was in a general election against the Democrat in what's a pretty a red district. And Adam uh, taped and we published. They claimed that we didn't have this stuff. They claimed that we made it up. They you know, were emailing me and calling me and telling me that my reporter was a fabulist and would be you know, he would be ruined and the magazine would be ruined because obviously we didn't tape this because obviously Steve King didn't say anything like what we had reported him saying. And we just, we waited for a couple of days. Uh, and he, he, then I think maybe because we waited, um, grew more confident that we must not have the, the, uh, the goods because then he started taunting, uh, me and our editors on Twitter and, saying, you know, if you've got the tape, you really just need to put it out. You've got to do it. And then we finally did. And they said nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, this isn't just a a one-off incident. He's, you know, engaged with very high-profile white nationalists um, abroad. He's like, I, He endorsed a, mayor, or a candidate for the mayor of Toronto. Um, he's a congressman from Iowa's fourth congressional district. I don't know what he has to do with the mayoral race in Toronto, but that mayor mayoral candidate was a avowed white nationalist and white supremacist. And um, so, you know, so Steve King is, uh, he has these beliefs. He's uh, not a great guy. And, uh, and, and Republicans acted, they, they removed him from his committee assignments. They um, funneled, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in uh, donor money into that race in Iowa's fourth congressional district, and they were able to defeat him and, and remove him from the party. And this was, you know, decade in the making. Uh, the the GOP establishment wanted him gone, and they finally did. And then, less than a month later, these comments from from Green uh, uh, emerge, and and now they're kind of facing a, a Steve King redux, um, and and actually. One top House Republican told me uh, earlier this week that they view Green as, quote, 10 times worse, um, if not more so than than Steve King ever was. So what are other members saying, either in leadership or even backbenchers? Uh, not a lot. So um, <laughs> Adam uh, Adam Kinzinger, a, a representative from Illinois, Republican, um, tweeted out the, the day after uh, the, the day after Green won her race, that uh, denouncing QAnon, saying that uh, QAnon is fabricated, it might be Russian disinformation, um, and that uh, and that nobody who uh, adheres to this kind of conspiracy theory belongs in Congress. Um, he got <laughs> he got blowback for that for for some reason. Um, the the Trump campaign, one of the, the Trump campaign staffers, Matt Wolking, uh, responded to to Kinzinger on Twitter. Not, uh, you know, not necessarily defending QAnon, but kind of playing this whataboutism of, well, why are you speaking up now when you're uh, aren't criticizing uh, Democratic conspiracy theories? Why are you so focused on QAnon? Um, And then I think and and Trump himself, um, it it endorsed uh, Green in, in her race and tweeted out that she's a rising Republican star, a real winner. Um. And and so after, after think, she won the primary, he tweeted that out. Yes, yes. rising Republican and, star, star of the future. Yeah. Yes, um, and and so I think that that cowed a lot of Republican members into into silence on this. I reached out to thirty offices yesterday, and the only one that I heard back from was McCarthy's. Um, there, people just don't want to uh, weigh in, and and. I, I talked to this, um, you know, this this campaign source with Cowan's campaign in in Georgia, the losing campaign there, and he's uh, he believes that it's because uh, that they're afraid of alienating this growing uh, wing of the Republican Party, this QAnon wing. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about that a little because Pew uh, put out a study in March thirtieth about. QAnon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a few months ago, but uh, 76% of U.S. adults had heard nothing at all about QAnon. And in fact, when you broke it out by partisanship, uh, liberals were more likely to have heard of it and know about it far more than conservatives. Uh, 39% of liberals, 
had heard of it compared to, you know, 18 to 20% or so of Republicans or conservatives. And what was even more uh, predictive of who had heard of it was the media that people consumed. So New York Times readers, 59% knew a lot or a little about QAnon. Fox News, 19% knew a lot or a little about QAnon. Uh, Network news, even lower. If you get most of your news from ABC, you have a 92% have never heard of this, know nothing about it. So I say all that because, um, A, it seems like a very online phenomenon. Uh, And I don't doubt that perhaps it's growing within some portions of the conservative movement um, and certainly having a representative in Congress will highlight some of this because the news media will no doubt enjoy, uh, you know, taking the more outrageous things she says and gives her, will give her a large platform um, to do that. But how much is this, you know, the right wing is QAnon, the left wing is Antifa, and the other side is in fact the one who likes to make it a bigger deal and say that it is representative of their opponents. Yeah, I, I, I definitely hear all of that. And, um, and I, I think it, it obviously is a very online uh, thing. It, it originated on a 4chan message board in 2017. It's, it's very, very fringe. Um, that being said, it, uh, you know, Facebook uh, internal investigation was just leaked to NBC News last week that found that there were um, millions more uh, members or followers of QAnon pages than they previously realized because so many of these groups were private. Um, and, you know, we, we uh, posed this question uh, in, in the morning dispatch today about kind of QAnon and, and Green and, and King. And we got a few responses here. I'll read one here. Um, I have heard from, uh, I have heard of QAnon. I live in Northwest Georgia in the district next to where they're electing green. It's actually why I quit Facebook. I was muting so many conspiracy theorists sounding people I knew in real life that I decided it was better to stop participating in social media rather than lose respect for so many acquaintances within my circle. Um, You know, so it's not a lot of people that's, that's, True, I think, um, but the people that do believe it are very hardcore about it and very uh, willing to express their views about it. We've also seen, you know, there are um, people who will be wearing Q paraphernalia, um, uh, showing up at, at Trump rallies when there used to be Trump rallies. Um, you know, there was a video a couple months ago of uh, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn reciting the QAnon pledge. Um, and and uh, and Trump himself has retweeted. Wait, time out. There's a QAnon pledge. I don't ask me to recite it because then I'm locked in and I have to be, become an adherent. Do you just mean? Do you mean the hashtag like where we go one we go all, or is there actually like a pledge? There's a there's a pledge that goes along with that hashtag. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I mean, by the way, just for listeners, like my QAnon knowledge comes from Wikipedia at this point. So I am by no what, means an that's expert. That's what they all say, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they don't all yeah. say that. Declan's right. They are much more aggressive. But I think, Sarah, you raise really good points. And I think it's good to be a little bit skeptical about how how deep the QAnon reaches now. I would just say in, in a primary race, where you have, you know, in all likelihood, the hardest of hardcore political activists, there's likely to be a greater percentage, I would think, people who are into to this kind of thing. But but there was another quote in Declan's piece that really struck me that went well beyond QAnon um, and got to, I think, you know, a, a core of one of the reasons that, that she had support. And uh, it came from a, a, a source that uh, was close to the Cowan campaign, the defeated candidates campaign, um, who, as as Declan points out, is very pro-life, pro-gun. First thing he listed on his website was that he was strongly in Donald Trump's uh, corner. Um, but the, the source close to his campaign said the most consistent thing we heard about why uh, Cowan lost to Green was that, well, she's going to go and fight. She's going to fight. She's going to fight. When you prod a little deeper and ask, what does that fight look like? They couldn't tell you, but they just know she's going to fight. 
And I think there's a deeper truth there. I mean, I think, and, and we've talked about it uh, on the Dispatch podcast before, there's such an urge to be confrontational in the base of the Republican Party right now, particularly from those who are the, the most fervent supporters of Donald Trump, that that is what it's all about, in a sense. And I, I don't remember if I've mentioned this here before, but there was this moment back in the I think we've seen kind of a tr transition on the, the right from the Tea Party days back in 2009, 2010, when that was truly an ideological movement, I think, or it seemed to be an ideological movement based on debts and deficits and Obamacare and the overreach with the stimulus, um, where you had what, what seemed to be this ideological uh, movement. And now you have a movement that's basically, I think, more built on grievance and a willingness to to fight. And there was this this hinge moment that struck me as as interesting at the time. But now, with the benefit of hindsight, I think really um, looks important. And, and it was Rand Paul's filibuster um, on droning, where he went to the Senate floor and gave a speech about the, the uh, powers of the federal government. And, and there were, you know, the, the possibility that our own people could be droned at Starbucks. Um, it was the kind of thing that, that we wouldn't have expected to um, animate and excite a Republican party, even a Republican party with a, with a healthy slice of pretty libertarian folks. Um, but it did, it had that effect, you know, remember there was the stand with Rand hashtag and Ted Cruz went down and gave a speech on his behalf and everybody went and, and stood with Rand. And you had even people who were strong national security conservatives standing with Rand. And it turns out, I think people weren't that worried about being droned, um, or the, the substantive issues that Rand Paul was raising. It turned out he was just somebody who was willing to have a fight. He was willing to be in the face of the Obama administration and take them on and raise these issues. And that's what rallied people to him at that time. And I think we've seen this sort of hunger for that kind of fight. I think it explains a lot of why Donald Trump won in 2016. And I think it explains some of what we're seeing with uh, with Green in this race, I mean, as, as related by the Cowan uh, campaign source. But I think the, 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 the other thing is she is not, it was, it was not just a QAnon, uh, embrace that sets her kind of apart. Um, even if you set aside her, her embrace of QAnon, she has, you know, she's embraced conspiracy theories about the Parkland shooting. She's embraced conspiracy theories about a wide variety of things. And then to learn that she was a nine 11 truther, um, at the after after the the primary was over is sort of the, the the capstone. Fascinating that she has walked back her 9/11 statements and said that she now acknowledges um, that she was mistaken and that of course there is evidence that a plane went into the Pentagon. Uh, I raise that not to defend her, but it's unusual for someone of her temperament who won for exactly the reasons that you're saying. You know, she's going to fight. Um, you don't hear Donald Trump take back some of his more outrageous statements. And yet on 9-11, she did. And I wonder if that's uh, uh, an indication that she actually is wants to play in the sandbox in Congress or if she's going to continue sort of a fringe congressional backbench thing. Yeah. So when I, when I talked to to uh, Steve King yesterday, he he um, he's for first part, he says he is not interested in the QAnon conspiracy theory, which uh, was interesting to hear. Um, but he uh, but he also added that he thinks that Green should be respected, and but that he predicts that um, McCarthy will kind of use King and the example that uh, King set in getting removed from his committees as, quote, the sword of Damocles um, against, um, against Green, and that he might be able to, McCarthy might be able to rein in some of her more extremist, um, you know, statements or, or commentary by kind of threatening that, that action if he holds on to it, um, in his back pocket. Um, but I, so 
does she become the AOC of the right, a boogeyman that the left uses more than she is actually influential over Republican politics? Yeah, I, I don't think that she's going to be all that in, influential over Republican politics. I mean, I'm, maybe you can play this audio back in eight years when she's the nominee and, and <laughs> out on me. But um, but I think it, it, it more says uh, something about the Republican Party right now that they don't feel comfortable distancing themselves from someone like her. I think that's the bigger takeaway from the story. And then, you know, who who knows who else decides to run for Congress because they see uh, they see, oh, she can win and and nobody's going to criticize her for having these beliefs. So why can't I? And, you know, there there's an interesting piece uh, not comparing the QAnon and, and the Tea Party on the merits, but kind of just in how it spread. Um, you know, a decade ago, where a lot of people dismissed the Tea Party as kind of a fringe group of activists um, 10 years ago that, um, you know, were, uh, didn't really have any real grievances, were kind of, uh, you know, just airing, airing um, frustrations with, with Obama's election. Um, you know, fast forward 10 years, they, that, that group was one of the most potent forces in American politics for the first half of the, the last decade. And so, you know, it'll be it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, how how things play out with with Green and kind of with others. I mean, she's not the only Republican uh, nominee that adheres to QAnon. Um, she's the one that's most likely to win. But um, there are there are several others that, that have kind of expressed support for the conspiracy theory. So um, is there a chance she loses? So I, I looked at let me pull this up here. Trump run won the race like seventy five to twenty two or something like that um, in in twenty sixteen in this district. Um, the NRCC, the the group that um, uh, manages House races and and tries to elect Republicans, uh, told me yesterday a spoke uh, source close to them uh, said that they're probably not going to end up any spending any money um, on on Green's race, but not because of anything that she's said or done. It's because they're so confident. That right. she's Why would you hold, spend money? Hold the yeah. seat. Um, so no. I, I, Let's see Doug Jones in Alabama. That's true. That's true. Um, but I mean, I, I think it's a little bit tougher in, in a house race. That's very, um, you know, it's a much smaller electorate. It's a much more uh, targeted electorate uh, than a statewide race would be. And, and these kind of voters are, um, are Green's kind of bread and butter. And, and her message seems to, to really resonate with them. Yeah, she seems like she doesn't have too many regrets about um, her, her claims over the years. I mean, I think she had to- She tweeted out yesterday a gif of, from that movie, No Regrets, the guy with the tattoo. Um, right. Yeah, so yeah. She, and and that's, that's one other thing that I'll note is that, I mean, this week has been great for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like she thrives um, kind of with, with, and people like her thrive getting this attention and this, um, this criticism from, from the places that she's getting it from the media, from, um, you know, anonymous GOP sources and, and whatnot. Like that is, that is money in the bank for, for people like her. And, you know, that's the, that's the danger with some of this stuff is, are you elevating the fringe of the fringe to rebut it? Um, or does that elevation uh, then cause more people to see uh, these comments and see these beliefs that otherwise wouldn't have? And, and that's a struggle. I think it's, you know, um, I think once she wins the nomination for the, the party and is likely to be a congresswoman come 2021, that's a pretty fair point to start, you know, actually paying attention. But um, if it's somebody that's not going to go anywhere in a race and, and not going to do anything? Is it, is it worth elevating, um, you know, these voices and these, and giving them the attention that they, that they want and that they thrive on? I mean, her, her pinned tweet right now on Twitter is quote, I've made all the right enemies. The fake news media hates me. Big tech censors me. The DC swamp fears me. Now Soros and the Dems are trying to take me down. And it's, you know, every time somebody criticizes her in that group, that makes her stronger <laughs> to to her voters, and so it's it's an interesting kind of dilemma. Um, if if you're not in favor of of these theories and in favor of um, 
you know, candidates like Green, how do you treat them? How do you um, engage with them in a way that discredits or, or pushes back against kind of the, the extreme elements without giving them attention that, uh, that otherwise they could use to their advantage? It's a good question. And I mean, <laughs> uh, 26, 2016 played out very similarly, you know? Let me turn this on Steve. How does the dispatch want to approach that sort of reporting question? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously we've spent a half hour here talking about her. Declan did a piece about her. Audrey did the terrific piece that Declan mentioned earlier on, you know, the the growing conspiracy movement in the Republican Party. Um, So clearly we've made an editorial decision that we don't think that this is something that can just be ignored. Um, I think there's, you know, I think looking at the vote totals in Georgia's 14th district, it's not. Now that doesn't, that isn't to say that everybody who voted for her vote believes in, you know, either QAnon or these other conspiracy theories. They may have voted for her for, for many other reasons, but they're not alarmed about the fact that she has amplified these conspiracy theories and, and, and believes them. Um, I think it's a problem. I think you know, if if you are a conservative who believes in sort of the basics of conservative movement principles, um, having people like her uh, represent conservatism in the U.S. Congress is is bad. I mean, it's bad for the country. It's bad for the conservative movement. I think it's bad all around. Um, I think it's it, we sort of have an obligation to report on folks like this. And there's an argument to be made that that because people didn't take these kinds of things seriously enough before, they've been allowed to grow and fester um, and they spread. Now, it's it's not necessarily the case that, you know, because we write a, a piece pointing out that the stuff that she's saying is bullshit will change a lot of minds. If 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 you're an online Facebook QAnon adherent, you probably don't care a ton what the dispatch uh, says if you're a true believer. On the other hand, if if it's the case that, you know, you're you're somebody's uncle who gets this thing passed along to you that seems plausible enough on its face and and you're kind of a passive news consumer, um, maybe it's the case that if we say, you know what, this is not true, this is this is nonsense and this is a conspiracy monger spreading BS that those people might listen and might say, yeah, you know what? I don't think that's right. I mean, it's part of the reason that we have uh, the fact checking operation that we do is, is so that we can help guide people who, you know, normal people across the country who don't have time to, to spend all day digging into these things or doing their own reporting on them. It's important that some, some people, I think in particular on the center right are saying, yeah, you know what, this is not true. And we're an authoritative source on this and you should believe what we're saying. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, CarShield. Computer systems and cars are the new normal from electronically controlled transmissions to touchscreen displays to dozens of sensors, but you can't fix any of these features yourself. So when something breaks, it could cost a fortune. Now is not the time for expensive repairs. That's why there's CarShield. CarShield has affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for a covered repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. The people at CarShield understand payment flexibility is an absolute must. Monthly plans can be customized to your needs with rates as low as $99 a month. No long-term contracts or commitments. CarShield gives you options others won't. You get to choose your favorite mechanic or dealership to do the work, and CarShield takes care of the rest. They also offer complimentary 24-7 roadside assistance and a rental car while yours is being fixed. CarShield has helped over 1 million customers. So drive with confidence knowing you've got coverage from America's number one auto protection company. For as low as $99 a month, you can protect yourself from surprises and save thousands for a covered repair. Call 800-CAR-6000 and mention code DISPATCH or visit carshield.com and use code DISPATCH to save 10%. That's carshield.com, code DISPATCH. A deductible may apply. So speaking about the future of the Republican Party, I'll take our last few minutes and go on a little uh, side jaunt 
if you will. So uh, Ledger 360 is a polling firm, and they looked at first choice for the Republican primary in 2024. And among Republican respondents, who are presumably the ones most likely to vote in a Republican primary, Mike Pence, 31 percent, Donald Trump Jr., 17 percent, Nikki Haley, 11 percent, Mitt Romney, 9 percent. So those are the top four, Pence, Trump Jr., Haley and Romney. When you look among the general population, though, I found this really fascinating. 30%. Declan, do you know who got 30% among the general population for the Republican primary in 2024? Shoot. Uh, would it be that? It's Mitt Romney. Okay. Yeah. Mitt, Mitt Romney comes in far and away first place. Mike Pence at 18%. Uh, followed by Nikki Haley, and then when you say Donald general population, are you just saying adults, so non-Republicans? Correct, as in yeah. people less likely to vote in the Republican Party. There are a lot. There are a lot of Democrats right now uh, who love. I mean, Mitt Romney's approval rating, I'm fairly certain, is much much higher among Democrats than it is Republicans. Um, and I mean, you there's in in a different race in Georgia between uh, Senator Kelly Loeffler and Representative Doug Collins to um, replace uh, Johnny Isaacson in, in, in the Senate. Um, the, Loeffler is attacking uh, Collins for an old Facebook post from 2012 saying that Collins is supporting Mitt Romney for president, um, the Republican nominee for president. Nevertheless, I mean, La- Kelly, Kelly Loeffler herself donated almost a million dollars to Romney's campaign uh, in, in 2012. And, but that is more than she donated to Donald Trump, funny correct. enough. Um, and, but I mean, Mitt Romney is, is such a boogeyman on the right these days uh, that, that that is hilarious that that's what they're squabbling over. Um, but yeah, I mean, those Democratic voters are not going to vote for Mitt Romney in a primary or in a general election, uh, no matter how much they say they like him now. You know, another little thing worth noting is Tucker Carlson among Republican voters comes in at 7%, which ain't nothing. Silence, he's silence. Got, he's, got, he's got his hardcore <laughs> supporters. I mean, I think talk, you know, people who love Tucker love Tucker. Um, I, I don't think he has broader appeal, but he's, you know, he's, he's, a talented, um, he's a talented television host and he's an entertaining speaker, that's for sure. And he, he seems to have more of a an actual defined worldview than a lot of these other pundits and, um, and, and kind of people that you see, uh, out there on TV. I mean, he, he is one of the more likely people on Fox news to criticize Trump when he, um, kind of strays from this more populist nationalist bent that, that, that he's kind of taken the mantle on. Um, and, and that, that worldview is, is different than the worldview he had just a few short years ago, though. I mean, Tucker was an adjunct scholar or, or a, an associated scholar at the Cato Institute, the libertarian think tank. In yes, I'm, I'm talking about uh, now, Tucker, t- Tucker PT, post-Trump, uh, as opposed to BT. Um, right. But, but um, among, you know, among, among other Fox hosts like Sean Hannity, which will is more or less just a booster of Trump um, and kind of Trumpism. So it, but oh, right. it's sort of fascinating that Sean Hannity does not make that list. Tucker Carlson right. does. Right. And so it's not simply a like, oh, these are people who support Trump and see Tucker as the heir to Trump or else they pick Sean yeah. Hannity. There is something more unique about Tucker that I think does make him a more viable candidate in 2024. And I, I know I'm not the first person to say this, um, but, uh, I'm curious, there will be a Republican nominee in 2024, whether Trump wins or loses. Uh, Steve, do you think that there's a different Republican nominee depending on whether Trump wins or loses? Yeah, I think it's night and day. I think if Trump, you know, David French in a newsletter maybe three weeks ago sketched out three different plausible scenarios, plausible outcomes um, in November. And I I think they're they're probably right. I'd, I'd bet that he's right. One was a narrow Trump victory. One was a narrow Biden victory. And the other was a Biden blowout of Trump. I think if you have a narrow, um, assuming Trump loses, which the polling today suggests Nate, Nate Silver and 538 put put that at 
seven and 10 odds. Uh, the Economist in, in their model puts it closer to nine and 10 odds. Um, there's a lot of funny about the Nate Silver numbers. That's exactly where Hillary oh, yeah. was, though. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's important to note that just because that's where the polling is today does not mean that that's where the polling will remain for the final uh, couple months here, the final three months here. Um, and there are the possibility of any of a number of external events shaping um, shaping the outcome. But if you assume that Donald Trump loses, I think if he loses badly, it's a very, very different scenario than if he wins. Um, obviously I think it's also a very, very different scenario than if he loses in a close race and is able at least to his hardcore base to question the legitimacy of the election, which I think, I mean, I would put money that he will, he questions the legitimacy of every poll that shows him losing. He's that's who he is. It's what he does. I think if he loses badly, you're likely to see sort of, um, some relief, among Republican elected officials in Washington, many of whom have never been enthusiastic Trump supporters, have just gone along with with him and his program because he's the president, he's in their party. Some of their hardcore voters see, seem to support the guy, uh, but aren't are not passionate Trumpists. And this is something uh, you know Matt Gates, who is a passionate Trumpist, has acknowledged. Um, Sorry, I have some Harley Davidsons uh, roaring behind me. This is something that Matt Gates, who is a, a passionate Trumpist, has acknowledged. A lot of his colleagues are not um, enthusiastic about Donald Trump. And I think we're likely to see that if Trump, in fact, loses badly. And look, I mean, the, the polls are interesting about a 2024 um, potential candidates. It, it's I think they will look very different if if Trump loses. And they also have a built in recency bias because that's who's in charge now. Um, I think right. get, get a year, get a year out if there's a, a big Trump loss. And I think you'll see an entirely different set of, of names and some of whom will have worked in the Trump administration or, or, or been close to to Donald Trump. Um, you know, Mike Pompeo is often mentioned in that group. Tom Cotton, who has been friendlier to Trump than uh some of his Senate colleagues, Nikki Haley, who was mentioned there, worked in the Trump administration. Um, I, you know, those are some of the people that you're you're likely to see on that list. But I think you'll I'll see you'll see the emergence of some others as well. Yeah, there's a very real there's a very real chance that uh, the nominee is not on that list that uh, that that group hold. I mean, if if you took that if you took that methodology and brought it back to you know, August 2012, predicting uh, who the nominee would be in 2016. I don't think you probably would have had many people um, saying that they bought, that they believe Donald Trump would, would be that person. And so there's, you know, between now and 2024, there's, um, you know, two two more uh, elections for, for new people to, to kind of enter the fray. There's potential for, um, you know, prominent business people or celebrities to, to kind of start testing the waters for, for a run. And, and I, I just think it's, it, you don't, you have no idea what, what's going to happen two weeks from now, let alone four years from now. And so, um, there will be the, the, the knife fighting has already kind of begun in a lot of these, uh, quarters to kind of start positioning yourself themselves for the, uh, the best chance to be the heir apparent, uh, come 2024. But, um, so much is going to depend on things completely outside of uh, outside of these players' control. Um, to yeah, and I just to, just to add to that, I mean, I think you know, among the biggest sort of contours of this coming debate, again, if the president loses decisively in November, will be these questions that we've been discussing here. I mean, the willingness of um, these candidates to fight, the the willingness of them to entertain. Uh, these kinds of conspiracy theories. Um, it's one of the reasons that that Marjorie Greene presents a, um, a challenge for people like Kevin McCarthy. I, I don't think it's a challenge. Kevin McCarthy obviously does, given what we've talked about with his double standard uh, on, on Steve King and Marjorie Greene. But, you know, it's not like the Republican Party can can claim to be shocked that that we've seen emergence the emergence of candidates who embrace 
conspiracy theories. I mean, that's what President Trump has done uh, for years, you know, the, from the, the Ted Cruz, Rafael Cruz involvement in the Kennedy assassination um, claim that he made to any of a number of things that he's just made up of, out of whole cloth to other times where he's amplified existing conspiracy theories. I mean, this is the Republican Party for for, uh, for all its its many problems has embraced this, um, at least some of its voters, if not the elected officials. So that will be, I think, a, a, a tell. And, you know, as Declan pointed out, you have the, the folks who endorsed Marjorie Green are apparently untroubled by this. And you have somebody like Matt Gates who was on Twitter um, boosting Marjorie Green even after the, the 9-11 Truther video comes out. You have Kevin McCarthy embracing her. They're not troubled by that. I think, I think we'll find that there are a lot of Republicans um, in Congress and across the country who are troubled by that. And, and that will be a, a defining characteristic in the, these coming debates. And I, and I would say, I mean... It, it's no accident that Steve Scalise got out and, and made clear in the press and, and kind of in, in different reports that he endorsed Cowan, that he fundraised for Cowan. I think that that's, you know, you, you lay the groundwork now so that if there is this, you know, Trump landslide uh, loss in, in November, you can point back to these things and say, see, look, I was um, against this and, and I have better political instincts than, than these other people. And I can, um, forge a, a, a new leadership future. You see um, people like Senator Ben Sass after kind of, uh, you know, going a, a little bit underground uh, in advance of his primary is now kind of reemerging as, as a leading Trump critic um, in, in the Senate. Um, and so you'll start to see, I think, if the poll numbers kind of continue to, to look the way that they do, um, a little bit more uh, leeway with these Republican elected officials trying to distance themselves from the president and kind of the the uh, current state of the Republican Party, so that in the event of a of a massive loss, they can point back and say, "See, I wasn't one of them. I wasn't. I was uh, a different kind of breed of, of Republican." And a quick break to hear from our sponsor, the Bradley Foundation. Making sense of current events during this extraordinary time can be trying. Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. Visit bradleyfdn.org liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring renowned scholar Robert P. George, the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University, George is a 2005 winner of the Bradley Prize and a member of the Bradley Foundation's Board of Directors. In this episode, he makes the case against judging historical figures by present standards and for telling the truth about America's history, protecting the integrity of the institutions of civil society, and being more understanding of those who have perspectives different from our own. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes debut weekly, so go back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. Okay, last question. It's Friday night, August. This used to be like a, you know, go out, have some drinks type of, type of night. Uh, not anymore. Declan, what's for dinner in your house tonight? Huh, I've got... Uh some leftover frozen pizza from last night that I, oh, funny, funny story, <laughs> wow. actually. That's like the saddest so, of the sad, leftover frozen so it, pizza. So it's Home Run In, which is a great <laughs> Chicago brand, um, really, really good stuff in, in terms of the frozen pizza, but it's actually a funny story. I, uh, I've been trying to get in touch with both Steve King and um, this this source on the, the Cowan campaign all day yesterday, been emailing, texting different people, trying to, trying to get them to give me a call. I'm about to put this frozen pizza in the oven. And then I get a call from the, uh, Cowan source, answer it, sprint back to my room, grab my recorder, um, and, and put it on speakerphone. Um, me my girlfriend has no idea what I'm doing, why I just dropped the pizza on the middle of the counter. Um, and then I'm talking to him, uh, and, and kind of starting to, to do the interview and Steve King calls <laughs> And so I'm on the phone with this other source and I'm like, so sorry, I have to hang up. Uh, I'll call you right back. But Steve King is calling me. He's on the other line. Um, and he was very understanding and, and let me call him back. But 
Um, yeah, so I have half pizza left that, that I can enjoy. That's the saddest thing I've ever heard. Steve, you're up in Wisconsin. Yeah, What's for dinner we, tonight? We, uh, we made a swing through Costco on the way um, up to Door County, Wisconsin, and picked up some of their Tuscan pork tenderloin. Highly recommend it. Uh, this is a relatively new thing for us, um, but it's cheap, as many things at Costco are, and it's very good. So I am going to be grilling uh, Tuscan pork tenderloin from Costco. We too are having pork here. I'm going to throw a giant pork butt in the pressure cooker. And I made my own barbecue sauce for the brisket, not the baby brisket, but the actual brisket a few weeks ago. So I'm going to throw in my homemade barbecue sauce. In and how did you pressure. make it? What was what are the, the key ingredients? I'm so glad you asked, Steve. <laughs> I am a I'm not really barbecue sauce connoisseur. I am a hot sauce freak. Same. And my first uh, my first freelance story, reported story, when I graduated from journalism school was a piece I did for Salon, where I went to something called the Fiery Foods Festival, um, <laughs> usually held in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This one yes. held in Reno, Nevada. Um, but I went and covered the Fiery Foods Festival because I'm sort of obsessed. I think I ended up losing money on the piece, but uh, it was well, <laughs> well worth the trip. So uh, what, are, what are the ingredients? I'm a big fan of Fuego Box, by the way, not a sponsor of this podcast, but they should be. Um, so if you have not gone to FuegoBox.com, Steve, uh, I know what I'm getting you for, for Christmas. Excellent. Uh, they do a subscription box, which is really fun. Uh, so yeah, so I have some, uh, I do put some hot sauce in. Here's the secret ingredient though, and you can't taste it, uh, but it's espresso. Ooh, I buy it. Because I'm not actually a big ketchup fan. I'm actually not a huge barbecue sauce fan. I'm from Texas and we don't believe in barbecue sauce. We do dry rubs. Um, but with pulled pork, obviously you need some, some moisture. Uh, so the espresso kind of cuts the sweetness of the ketchup. And then you've got some hot sauce. And then of course you've got some seasonings that you need to just add in there to, you know, some chili powder and stuff like that. But I would say that those are the two key ingredients. I like it. Sounds good. All right. Thank you, uh, listeners, for joining us. Subscribe to this podcast. And we look forward to seeing you on Wednesday for our normal roundtable very soon. 